This is an ABC podcast. Today on the show, a special story collection from seven guests, all of them Australian musicians who've been on conversations in recent years. Our guests are musically very different, but what they have in common are origin stories from their childhoods, which in hindsight meant they were always destined for a life in music. You'll hear from Soviet-born Eleanor Katz-Chernin, gifted at piano from when she was a toddler, Rob Hurst of the Oils, who first drummed along to rock and roll on the carpet in his family's home in the bush, and William Barton, whose uncle passed to him the cultural knowledge to become a didgeridoo virtuoso, as well as stories from Jen Cloer and Vicar and Linda Ball. First up, it's the extraordinary story of singer-songwriter Vic Sims. Vic tells how he became a boy rock and roll star back in the 1950s. He was just 11 years old. Vic was right there at the birth of Australian rock and roll. I come from La Perez. I'm a Bidjigal man. That's B-I-D-J-I-G-A-L. We're the First Nations people of this land, first discovered peoples, and I'm part of that. My forebears were there when Cook and Philip and La Perez and all these people come into the bay. Obviously, we're still there today. And I'm the last man standing who was actually born on Bidjigal land, so I feel quite proud of that. My traditional beliefs, even though we live in an urban society, my, my traditional beliefs are very strong. I'm a 24-7 blackfellow, and that's part of my life, and the music makes up the other half, I guess. Tell me about the house you grew up in. Well, if you want to call it a house, it uh, was just a, some tin and hessian thrown together with a dirt floor, and I remember my mum on a hot day used to give me a little uh, jam tin along with my brothers and sisters and a, and a, a good-sized stick and say, listen, the, the tar should be durable enough to collect and put in this tin so we could patch up the holes in the roof. So she said, go over there, take your tin, take your stick, get get the tar as it's starting to melt in the heat. Off the road? And, uh, off the road. And that's how you'd patch up the house? That's how we patched up the house. She'd have some old rag and stuff and she'd, she'd put the tar together with the rag and, and plug the holes up. But it was a good, happy times. Was it a loving family? Was it a, a oh, happy Oh, we had much happy love for home? each other. So tell me, Vic, how you came... How I came to be, how, how you, yeah, musically. How it was that at the age of 11, you came to be on stage at a football social? There was a little hall at the side of this picture theatre in, in Maroub Junction called the Kawana Milk Bar. And just down underneath was a little social centre gathering for people. So I got there one night after a game and there was a little quartet playing. It was called the Kevin Jacobson Quartet, and the singer, uh, his name was Cole Jacobson. So they took a break, and they said, look, if we're a little worn out, and if anyone wants to get up and sing a song, you're welcome to do so. What did you sing? I sung Tutti Fruity, the old Little Richard classic. They said, we're, we're just trying to break into showbiz too. But if we do, and when we do, you're there. Weeks and months went past. So one day this old Green FJ pulled up outside, and out come the Jacobson brothers. And uh, there's no point knocking on the door because we didn't have a door. So they tapped on the corrugated iron and uh, I was outside playing with kids and my mum yelled out. And, and we sat down and they said, well, Mrs Sims, the reason we're here is because uh, we've just cracked it to make our stage debut. It was at the Manly Embassy. I think it was the 15th of October, 19... 19- 57, they were looking forward to performing. And they said, we want your son to be part of it. And me, my mum and dad said, well, you know, we're finding it hard. Have a look at us. We've got a dirt floor. We've got pots and pans laying around the place that need to catch water. We were extremely poor. 
They said, well, you don't worry about that. We'll buy him whatever he needs, a pair of shoes and jeans. I said, who else is on the show? They said, a man called Johnny O'Keefe. So I rehearsed uh, about four or five songs, Tutti Fruity, Red Sails in the Sunset and stuff like this. Colin Jacobson changed his name to Cold Joy. Cold Joy. And his band was Cold Joy and the Joy Boys. Yes. And you're performing with him and yeah. Johnny O'Keefe. Yeah. So this puts you at 11, 12 years old. At I was the 11 very, years of age. 11 years of age yeah. at the very birth of Australian rock and roll. Mm-hmm. What do you remember of your first gig on stage, a proper gig, yeah. dressed up in new gear? What do you remember yeah. of that? I knocked it down. What do you mean by knocked it down? The, you, the audience went mad. Yeah, yeah. I really impressed. Dancing? And, uh, yeah, they got up in the aisles and danced and and I'd go backstage and O'Keefe with this prominent kiss curl hanging over his forehead would say, you done well tonight, kid. He said, but don't wear jeans. Nobody wears jeans. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him that's, that, that's all we could afford at the time. He says, you'll never, ever see people performing jeans as you go through life. You know, I see how wrong he was about 10 years down the track, you know. And uh, so anyway, that was it. And I got paid my 36 bob and we were running to catch the last ferry home, to catch the last tram back to La Perouse. And these suits running out, chased us down to the wharf at Manly. And they said, oh, look, hang on. They said, we want to talk to you. We need to... uh, Officially audition your son over the next couple of days. We've got a, a show coming on at the Tivoli Theatre and uh, we have an overseas star coming out. She comes from a place called Tiger Bay. And when I got to the Tivoli and I went through my rehearsal, I said, I said, who's a lady? And they said, well, her name is Shirley Bassey. I said, is she well known? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the beginning of a career. From there, I started to do commercials for... Uh, Dairy Farmer's Milk, done a few little sing-along commercials. And then came the bandstands and... And Six O'Clock Rock as well. Six O'Clock Rock. Come on, everybody, it's six (laughs) o'clock. Come on, everybody, it's time to rock. (laughs) Well, it's up and it's rock. Come on, everybody, it's six o'clock. Well, everybody knows... A lot of those shows were live too, live to air, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. And uh, then I started to travel interstate and I just got into trouble for not being at school and got a rap across the knuckles because it was quite imperative that Aboriginal children be educated at that time. So I got into a bit of strife. My mum got me what they called an exemption to leave school so I could go into it full time. So I was 14 and 10 months when I really hit my straps, so to speak. And I had some great support. O'Keefe encouraged me as well as Cole Joy. And I did a thing called Jukebox Jury on Channel 7 and I was put up against Bobby V's record. So I did a song called Yo-Yo Heart, my first recording. So they voted Yo-Yo Heart the winner of that segment. Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo-Yo Heart Time has come for us to part Gotta go because I know You only have a yo-yo heart You dangled me upon a string My love didn't mean a thing While I dangled on a string You were having one big fling You had to walk the dog, you said You were having fun instead All the things you said were lies You're a devil in disguise Around the world you said we'd go I stayed on to save the dough Double crossing so and so You are with a guy named Joe Yo, yo, yo 
you recorded your first single, Yo Yo Heart. You're kind of like, I don't know, little Stevie Wonder mixed mixed up with Michael Jackson. There's really no one else quite sound, sounding quite like you in Australia at the time, was there, Vic? No, I was I was the, the, the little golden-haired boy at the time. I was the youngest recording artist in the land, as well as probably the... Uh, youngest TV star at the time. You said you toured with the people like Shirley Bassey and oh, Buddy Holly. I had the pleasure of talking to Buddy Holly in 1958. I got to be in the know after my first recording and I went back and there's this guy sitting in the corner looking quite nondescript with a pair of horn rim glasses on. So I said, what's your name? He said, oh, Buddy, call me Buddy. And he, I said, I haven't seen your name on the program. He said, yeah, they put the crickets instead of Buddy Holly in the crickets on the program. He said, I've heard about you. I was 12 and I got to meet this guy who went on to become one of the great rock and rollers of all time. Peter Allen was a guy you worked with as well. Yeah, on many occasions. Tell me about the day when you went on tour with him and you and he got kicked out of a pool. Well, I'll tell you how it came about. We were touring uh, Western New South Wales. There's me, Cole joined the Joy Boys, Judy Stone, the Allen brothers, including Peter Allen. So we got into town early. It was sweltering and... Let's all go to the pool. And this is three years before the Freedom Ride with Charles Perkins and his colleagues. And so we went down to the pool and uh, I got in with the others. I was running and doing swan dives and I thought I was having a great time. And this guy came up and he said, listen, pal, you're going to leave. I said, why? He said, how many other black kids do you see I was the only one there. But Peter Allen seen what was going and come over. He said, what's going on? And I said, I've got to leave. He said, why? And the black said, well, there's no Aboriginal people allowed in this pool. So I said, okay, if that's the case, but uh, you will hear more about this. So they kicked me out. He said, well, if he's not good enough to stay, we won't, we won't stay here either. And that was my first taste of prejudice. Even to this day, I've never known any of my musical colleagues in my long career who's judged me on anything other than what I think the talent I had, eh? When you were kicked out, were you angry then? That was just strange to me because I've never experienced that before. I was just shocked about it to know that it, this existed. So when I, I got to hear about the, the Freedom Ride, I said, well, this is going to open your eyes because I'm three years ahead of you people. You can sing on a stage. You can't swim in a pool. That's true. Uh, but uh, out of that came inspiration as I got older to include that in some of the songs from the Lono. That's in real estate And you come to this dingy hole Where we all congregate And is it because you cannot stand The so-called friends you meet Do you feel you're on level terms With folk who can't The Loner is the powerful album Vic Sims wrote in the 1970s when he was in prison. In 2014, Vic re-recorded The Loner with Brisbane musician Luke Peacock. Vic has since been inducted into the National Indigenous Music Awards Hall of Fame. Jen Cloer is a Melbourne singer-songwriter raised in Adelaide, and when we spoke, Jen had vivid recall of the music that shaped her as a child. My first musical memory was an album and and it was on vinyl. I think on one side was maybe The Nutcracker and then on the other side was Peter and the Wolf. And I would have been, I think, maybe four. And I became 
obsessed. I mean, <laughs> for about a year, my parents said I I would finish dinner as an only child and I would go straight to the couch and they would have to put on Peter and the Wolf and I would sit there and listen to it from start to finish. What was it that grabbed you? I think it was a darkness to it, you know. There's an underbelly to Peter and the Wolf. There's this kind of danger lurking. And I think perhaps there was a part of me that thought that perhaps the story would change or, you know, like I think when you're a kid, you don't necessarily go, I'm going to listen to this and it's going to be the same thing every time, you know. And I think also I loved just hearing creative ideas and these instruments representing characters from Peter and the Wolves. So it was like the cat and the dark and Peter and his grandfather and and then hearing all of those instruments together, you know, with the symphony. It was, I don't know, there was something about it that just totally sparked my imagination. The cat thought... The bird is busy arguing, I'll just grab him. Stealthily, she crept towards him on her velvet paws. shouted Peter, and the bird immediately flew up into the tree. While the duck quacked angrily at the cat, from the middle of the pond. The cat walked round the tree and thought, Is it worth climbing up so high? By the time I get there, the bird will flow away. Peter Ustinov with a version of Peter and the Wolf. It's so great, his voice, isn't it? His imitation of the cat is wonderful. You know, I've never heard the Peter Ustinov version. That just sounds like a cat. You know, <laughs> anyone who owns a cat knows it's that kind of like, yeah, whatever, slinking along. You said, Jen, that you were an only child. Mm. Did that suit your personality? I wonder whether you just adapt, you know. I think for me, often people are like, oh, being an only child, that must have been hard. Um, well, I think it's more like they think it's hard because it was lonely. But I think what it actually helped um, develop for me was creative imagination. You know, I didn't have other siblings to compete with after dinner who might have wanted to listen to something else. <laughs> so I, Abba. Exactly. I was able to indulge my interests and I think it was great. Like I had a lot of time as a child to to imagine. The record player that you'd colonise after dinner, what sort of LPs did your mum and dad play on it? Did they use it too? Yeah, they did. They weren't 
terribly groovy, my parents. There wasn't Rolling Stones or, you Because this is 70s. Yeah, I was born in 73. So, yeah, we're looking at the 70s, I guess, you know, glam rock, Bowie, all of that kind of stuff's going on. And I wouldn't have known. At my house, there was Peter, Paul and Mary. Um, what was another one that they were into? Nana Muscuri. Nothing too edgy. But thankfully, uh, my mother grew up, um, she was the youngest of 10 children, and she grew up in the far north of New Zealand, uh, just near Kaitaia. Her father and mother and her siblings, so she, I think it was her brothers and sisters, introduced her, it would have been her siblings, to, uh, I guess, R&B and soul. So she brought into the house, like, Billie Holiday. So I started to hear the soul divas and then there was like, you know, Lena Horne and of course, you know, a little bit later on, Aretha Franklin. And I really identified with that music, perhaps a little bit more than, I don't know, the folk side of things. It spoke to me. Next, Rob Hurst. Rob is a drummer and most well known for his high energy performances with Midnight Oil. Rob grew up on a bush block with his mum and dad and two brothers. They lived in what used to be called Kent Lynn and is now Greater Campbelltown. In those days, just had this marvellous freedom for the first seven years, particularly myself and my older brother. Dad made a cricket pitch and he made a flying fox that we go screaming between trees. We ran around the bush making cubby houses and um, bothering funnel webs and... It was just magnificent. You know, Sarah, that um, program, the Michael Apted show, you know, Seven Up? And, you know, the theory is show me the man until he's seven, and I'll, the boy, and I'll show you the man, you know. And I really believe that because up until this day, you know, I have this hankering for being outside more than being inside. So growing up, loving the bush, still having that keen connection to nature and open spaces, how did pop music come into your life? We got this black and white TV. It was about... Um, 958, 59, and uh, it kept on blowing up. I remember the, the, the you remember when, when TVs first came? They rarely worked. <laughs> and when they did work, the reception was shocking, particularly out there in the bush. It was the promise of something on <laughs> That's that right. TV. Which made it even more tantalising. There was a show called um, Thank Your Lucky Stars. It was kind of the uh, precursor to Ready, Steady, Go. So from the very late 50s through the early 60s, they had beat bands from London and Liverpool. Mersey Beat had just hit. So they had bands like Freddie and the Dreamers and the Mersey Beats and Dave Clark Five, but they also had Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, and then later on the Who. And I, you know, I just fell in love with this program. Just thought, uh, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. Was there a song that really grabbed you in those early years? So I remember seeing Rolling Stones... Um, they had a couple of other hits before, but the one that I saw and remembered most was the Stones version. I, th I mean, in that, I, back then I thought they wrote this song called Little Red Rooster. But of course, it was only years later that, you know, it's a Willie Dixon song and Howling Wolf made the most popular version. But for this little white kid, you know, cut off <laughs> and just looking through this, you know, faulty black and white TV, you know, it was, it was the Stones. And I, and because we had chooks, you know, Dad had, Roosters and <laughs> took great pleasure in cutting off their heads and they'd run around with blood spurting out and, you know, I thought, oh, it's about a little red rooster, you know. I, 
<laughs> didn't understand the other implications of this song. So Innocent I, farmyard song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember the, the groove of it and uh, the harmonica. When you were listening to those songs, listening to the Stones, watching what you could make out on the TV, were you paying particular attention to the drumming? Oh, was yeah. that what was oh, getting yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so eventually uh, Dad moved the family down to this little south-facing block in Balmoral Beach. So it was when you moved to Balmoral that you started drumming yourself? Well, no, before that, I was drumming along on the carpet just with um, bits of sticks and things I found around the block before we even went So there. it was always the beat that was getting you Absolutely, in those songs. Absolutely, yeah, and it was Mersey beat. You know, the fact is um, the backbeat really came in. You know, in the 50s, it was the drumming was still driven by a big ride cymbal, and usually the snare was sort of doing complimentary grace notes and things. But by the late 50s, with rock and roll, the backbeat had become the big thing. And it was from America and then it went to the England and then it went everywhere, including Australia. You were playing along, just listening to music. Did you get lessons? Not initially, no. I just set up the bar stools at home. I had a snare drum, bar stool and a tom, <laughs> floor tom and a hi-hat. And I wore through the fake leather very quickly and then eventually, much to the neighbour's chagrin, I got some real drums. Because when I went to, to Mossman primary immediately volunteered for the marching band which would sort of march the students up to the oval in those days it was um calfskins and pigskins before plastic heads on drums so we learned how to tune them and detune them and learned from mr prendergast who was the band teacher learned basic kind of military roles um so i kind of learned that really early on and then tried to apply that to put my headphones on and then tried to apply that on the bar stools listening to all these bands I mentioned before. You know, I wonder that vinyl wore out pretty quickly. Is that what I think about your drumming, Rob? It's so physical. Does that come right back to the parade band where you're having to march and drum at the same time? Yeah, I guess I've always loved the physical aspect of drumming and it's something that I've just actually been able to do. And I think I've sort of become, you know, like people become <laughs> what their job is um, to a certain extent. And I sort of, sort of became this, this sort of drumming animal, you know, with the right muscles. And even today, for example, the Oils haven't played for 15 years, but when we toured last year, all that muscle memory must have come back. Whereas if, I, if you put me on a, on a push bike, you know, I can only get to the end of the street before I fall over and start gasping. They're different, different set of muscles. So the muscles I've got are only useful for playing the drums. You mentioned your big brother, Stephen, and yeah. I think older siblings can be such an important musical influence uh, growing up. What sort of music was, was your big brother into? Well, that's the thing. You know, it, it divided the family because the real musician in the strict sense in our family was, was Stephen Hurst, my elder brother, 18 months older, and he, from a very early age, was rather like a uh, David Helfkop kind of character who was able to master uh, by the time we got to... Um, Balmoral and move from Kendlin, he was already mastering the, the most difficult passages by Liszt and Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky and uh, Mozart, Bach and Beethoven. And so he was, you know, putting in the hours, massive hours uh, on the piano in this room and I was playing sticky fingers in this room <laughs> until we reached the point where, you know, I was getting my vinyl as it was back then. Actually, before that, vinyl was Bakelite or um, whatever albums were made and I was getting it from Spit Music because there were independent record stores back then and I was always buying this stuff and then putting it on and playing along at huge volume, you know, uh, to the Stones and uh, the Who and uh, later on uh, Led Zeppelin and, uh, you know, all the, all the bands of the time. And Stephen was trying to 
practice these most difficult passages. And he was a great sight reader as well. You know, he was fantastic uh, and still is. And, uh, Just imagining the sounds of everyone walking past the Hearst family home. What would have been coming out of those well, windows? Well, depending on which side of the house, that's right. <laughs> and eventually... Um, the tension in the house was palpable between the, you know, our two different musical styles. And, and how I, did that culminate? Well, well, I bought the stick. I bought sticky fingers, came it down, and um, it was the original one with all the beautiful packaging, you know, with all these photos of Mick and Keith and Charlie and Bill, and you know, it was just fantastic. And it, I'd save for weeks for it. Anyway, I was playing it as as loud as stereos went back then, and Stephen came rushing out and tore the needle across my new album. And he picked it off the turntable and then smashed it across his knee and then it exploded into a million pieces. So much so that years later, you know, there was bits of Moonlight Mile and Bitch and uh, <laughs> have you, Can You Hear Me Knocking was you could find bits of those songs in the soft furnishings around, you know. How did you respond uh, to Stephen this outrage? had been beating the living daylights out of me up until then, except I saw Red and I chased him through the house and he sort of looked at my eyes, you know, going red. And I managed to pin him down for the first time and decided that I would kill him, And uh, which I was in the process of doing. My tiny mother, she's, you know, she was less than five foot tall, put, tore me off before I actually did that. And after that, there was a grudging respect between the two musicians at home. Um, and, you know, we got on, from that point on, we got on really well. You know, there was a, an armistice. An armistice. Yeah. Did you, I mean, what were things like when you were little kids? How did the relationship start off? Poorly, because I, uh, on the day I was brought back from Camden Hospital, uh, Stephen took one look at me and picked up a piece of wood with a nail in it and drove it into my head. Actually drove it yeah, into your head? Yeah, yeah. So mum had to turn around and go back to Camden Hospital and readmit me. <laughs> and it was kind of war from then point on, you know, like <laughs> Until the great sticky fingers yeah, until this, fight Until off. years later, when in our mid-teens, when the, the sticky fingers incident. <laughs> How do you get on now as adults? Famously. Get on really well. on your mobile. This is Conversations on ABC Radio. Didgeridoo player William Barton is a Kalkadoon man from near Mount Isa in Queensland. William's career as a performer and composer has taken him all over the world. But in 2010, when we sat down together, I started by asking him to describe his country. A landscape of rugged beauty, you know, of quite intense ochre earth colours in the evenings and uh, really vivid sunrises in the morning. This is a great thing to be out in the middle of the bush out that way and just smell the eucalypt down near the river and the waterholes and so on and, and listen to nature once every now and again. That's the part of the country where I grew up, where I learnt the didgeridoo from my uncle, Uncle Arthur Peterson, and in fact learnt how to... Uh, uh, make the Did You Do as well with my father, Alf Barton, out on the, um, the station there, Carlton Hill Station. When you, when you sit out there at, in the dark at night, it seems, to my ears, eerily quiet for a while, and then you hear things. You hear things, you know, like the breeze through the trees. You might hear something far off. It's like a, um, a symphony of music out there already. Like, you know, you've got your silent moments, and then a little bit of a breeze will pick up, and the 
the leaves will rustle in the trees and uh, the water will lap up against the side of a, a rock hole and the birds will come down and, you know, have a little drink and look for their bugs and so on. Nature is the first port of call for, you know, my musicality and certainly was when I was growing up out there touring around that country, part of the country with uh, mum and dad, you know, on little excursions on the weekend and so on, camping by the, the waterholes and catching, you know, uh, black brim and so on. Uh, William, we can't talk about you and your music without talking about your mum, Delmay Barton. She was a singer. When did she start singing? Um, in her early years as a, as a child, growing up uh, in Springshore and Emerald out in the bush. She fell in love with uh, Mario Lanza and the Great Crusoe. Mum's father became blind through work accidents and so they watched a lot of silent films and so that was the musical back backing in, in uh, some of the movies that they, they saw. It wasn't until later in the uh, late 30s, I guess early 40s, uh, that she started singing again when she was in Mount Isa because she had an unusual operatic style voice out in the middle of the scrub. <laughs> you know, the teachers at the time weren't very appreciated of, um, of her style of voice. Were they so, discouraging? Yeah, in, in a way, yeah. Mum actually performed with my uncle as well uh, on Did You Do. Um, so it's this operatic style with um, straight Did You Do. So that's the music you grew up with then, William. So this integration of you know the old symphonic tradition from Europe it, with didgeridoo is just like a natural part of your childhood then? Yeah, that's correct. I became immersed in that subconsciously at a very early age. Tell me about learning to play the didgeridoo, how that started for you. Is playing the didgeridoo something you, you choose to do or is it chosen for you? I think in a, in a long tradition, it's something that's chosen for you. It's, it's in your bloodline or it's uh, part of that area of growing up. I was very fortunate to have my Uncle Arthur around and he was a big uh, mentor to me. Did he just come to you one day and just say, it's time you learnt this? How did, it, how did that go? From memory, it was more of my enthusiasm to sit there and listen to the didgeridoos, to him telling the stories because he, he was such a great storyteller and he could really paint the picture of little comedy uh, traditional stories or, uh, you know, just playing the didgeridoo solo. And it's very, very powerful, you know, listening to a master of the instrument like an elder. It's a different technique as opposed to someone learning from the internet or, you know, do-it-yourself uh, help book on didgeridoo playing. Could you really learn about, you know, the language of it? You know, I learnt a lot in that period of time growing up in Mount Isa. My uncle actually passed away when I was 11, 12 years old, uh, but I, I learned enough to actually kick through, be able to play it every day up to eight hours until my lungs were sore of practice because I loved it so much, you know. It wasn't about me, oh, yeah, I'm putting the timer on now, I'm going to uh, practice for eight hours. It was pretty much, yeah, just muck around all day and, and get, the, get the language to try to express the language because... As with any musician, as they know, at a certain level, um, you can have plenty of technique and be a show-off or whatever, but it doesn't mean nothing without being able to tell a story. You're a tall guy, but where does an 11-year-old find the lungs to actually make that much noise through a didgeridoo? <laughs> um, go to Dick Smith Electronic and get a little microchip and a, and a <laughs> foot pump. <laughs> I actually played on digi like an adult size didgeridoo, and so that immediately had to like force my lungs to expand and grow stronger in a short period of time rather than have a, have a shorter did you do. Does that mean you're playing for weeks of just with these funny little squeaks and squawks before you can actually learn how to make enough noise to travel right down the, the ditch? Well, the first process of it is actually getting the vibrations of the lips, which is the, the, like the fundamental note, as, as you would with a, the low note on the trombone or tuba. So it's like... 
that's through the hands of those listeners, and then progressing to learning and imitating, imitating the bird sounds and the articulation with the tongue. So, and then the next step, of course, is to progress to the circular breathing. Now, people always think、uh, circular breathing is the hardest thing. But in fact, it's the easiest thing compared to all the other elements you've got to learn.、Oh, I've never been able to do it. <laughs> I reckon it's hard. I reckon I can teach you in five minutes a concept, and you'll be playing with the London Philharmonic in no time. <laughs> you subscribed as a kid to ABC Classical Newsletter from Classic FM. What were you thinking when you were flicking through that as a kid? <laughs> I guess at the time it was just my initial stages of wanting to actually play with an orchestra, and and then you know getting getting the opportunity when I was seventeen, and I'm thinking, yeah. Yeah, one day, my name's going to be there. Not just as a didgeridoo player, but as a composer. And the funny thing was, like, you know, I play a didgeridoo solo. They'd always put traditional beside my name, and so I'm thinking, now that's got to change because it's actually a musical piece, regardless of whether I'm improvising it or not. It's you know about intellectual property. I was pretty cluey about that early up, and so no, I want to get royalties too, just like you playing your little violin. <laughs> I wrote this. Yeah, I so, wrote this. I wrote this. Even if it was on the spot, it's still my my creative ability. Given that you're, you know, the, the musician, the artistic sensitive one, you, did you get bullied for that at school? Yeah, I guess I was sort of、uh, the different one out. I had a more of a art outlook on life, probably more grounded. Because did you do, you know, when you're being taught by your, your elders and your teachers, it's more more about that. It's about the the serious side of of it. And your story to tell in 30 years' time from then and there, sort of thing. And on that note, like when my uncle passed away, his part of the tribe presented me with his did you do, which normally would be broken up and buried with the elder, the silence that sound forever. So that's why you can't really find did you do's that are more than a hundred years old or three years old, are three hundred years old, because you know they're buried out somewhere in the bush with the with the rest of the forest. That was a very big honour, but also a very big,、um, important task for me to take on. William Barton there for our musical origin stories collection. William's newest full-length work, A Lullaby, is premiering with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra on ABC Classic this month. Next, Elena Katz-Chernin. Elena is one of our most celebrated and prolific composers. She was born in Tashkent. Which was then part of the Soviet Union. When Elena was very little, she caused her parents some worry. I was, for some reason, slow in starting to talk. And when I talked,、um, I picked up from my neighbour's child a lot of speech impediments. So I spoke with a lot of letters really wrongly,、um, and somehow. The, and the speech was really not coming out very much at all. And when I was four, and we, well, we moved to Yaroslavl, and then my sister started having piano lessons. I heard her take those lessons when she was six, and somehow when I got home from that lesson, I started playing all the pieces that my sister、um, was playing. How? How? Was supposed to play actually? How? How? I wish I knew because she can remember much more than I can. You know, she just says it was just this. So you don't remember this is what you've been told of what you did. Yes, because I can't remember. It was actually quite a, well. It was because I was about four, or four and a half, or five. I can't remember this at all. You were four, and you were hearing music on the piano and just. What playing it? What do you mean finding it on the on yeah, the keyboard? Yeah, just it was just right there. It's like reading an alphabet. I I just knew it. It just was kind of a language which was there, and it was simple. 
I don't know. It's just, um, I mean, the pieces weren't amazingly difficult. They were just little, da 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 da. You know, just really small, but. Somehow, immediately, those letters connected with the notes and with the melody, they made sense to me, much more than words, much more than words. So I still, I don't think I spoke very well, you know, uh, while I already could play the piano. It was a huge relief to my parents and um, my sister as well, because they were worried that I was a little bit um, undeveloped. Mm. Yeah. Um, so some, suddenly this complete change around happened and uh, I, I guess they were very happy. I think it was a little bit difficult for my sister. She was really smart and she still is smart. But I think there, there suddenly I was with um, kind of beyond that. I was different. It was just different, you know, different kind of smartness. But my, I must say my sister is the person who actually taught me to speak properly. Uh, when she was six, she was incredible. She's like, she's the best teacher. So she actually worked on my speech and made me repeat letters constantly after her and she actually made me lose those impediments. Who encouraged you then to, to learn music? Did you did you then take formal lessons very quickly at a, very, at a young age? Yes, my parents then immediately, of course, uh, noticed that there was this gift, as we say, and they talked to the teacher and then I got, of course, I got lessons quite intense actually because I needed more. I, need, I was very fast, so... I needed more lessons quicker. <laughs> so there you are, Elena. You're like the Lisa Simpson of Tashkent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. Oh, this is good. This is going to stick. <laughs> I'm going to bill you with that from now on. And, and you're picking up this, this music. How were your parents about music then for you? Were they the kind of parents that were encouraging or were they going to say, oh, there's no way I'm going to buy you a piano. Go and, go and study maths or something instead. Well, not only that. We actually had two pianos. Oh, you had two? Yeah, well, my mum uh, mom was actually... Uh, well, she, well, I would like to say musician, but she never really became a musician, but she studied music at the same time as she studied medicine. She was mad about music. Um, my father had violin lessons when he was a child, so and he loved music, um, but he never really pursued it. Um, so both of them were very excited. So there was no problem. Um, it was the opposite. They wanted me to play all day. And any time any guest came over, there I was, of course, go and play as, you know, Moonlight Sonata, go and do, play as this. So that was a little bit annoying. But um, so you, you were always a kind of a show, show piece, right. you know. Right, yeah. yeah, a little Mozart, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. a little Mozart being wheeled out to play something beautiful in front of, in front of everyone. Ex- exactly. I'm guessing you loved it straight away and, and, and it became an obsession for you, I suppose, straight away music. Did it crowd out everything else from, from your... Your young life? A little bit, yes. I kind of did not really have a childhood like other people in some way. So I did feel a little bit envious of some friends. And a lot of times, um, let's say I had few friends, um, and they would do something after school. And I'd say, oh, what are you doing? Oh, I want, And they say, oh, we're not going to tell you. You're not going to come anyway. You'll never have time. And oh. that's kind of, I must say, <laughs> that hasn't changed that's very mean. much. <laughs> yeah, it was mean. I was very upset. Um, um, as a child, I had lots of those situations where I had to miss out on just fun. What, what did that mean, though? Did you find a way to let music take over the rest of your studies, for example? No, that's the. We actually had quite uh, tough schooling and a lot of homework. So I think the hardest thing for me, I think, in that time was getting up in the morning because I went to bed really late. So I remember those waking waking up was 
torture because I really didn't sleep. As you know, children need more sleep than adults. Why and were you I, up so late? Because I had to do all this homework. I because after school I was running to well, I actually had figure skating on top of music. I was running with my you know figure skates to the figure skating. Then I ran to the music school. I uh, had a piano lesson or a theory lesson or a music history lesson. Then I ran maybe back to ice skating training. And then I went home and had to do all this homework that I actually had to do for the school. And when would you start that? What time of night would that be? Sometimes I got home at nine and I had to sort of, and I usually just gulped a bun on the way to figure skating. You know, I didn't always have proper dinner, but sometimes I did. I, <laughs> my parents were great, I must say. <laughs> they, they were, they were, my mum very often came with me, you know, and she stood there at the, you know, figure skating rink. Were you in love with figure skating too, Elena? Actually, not really, no. I wasn't that good at it. And I'm, I must say, it was a bit of a uh, struggle for me. But my mother thought it was a really good thing to do, physical education, and she really wanted us, my, my sister and me to be fit. So that was the reason she took us to the figure skating in the first place. Um, because we were in the fresh air, outdoors, m doing exercise, you know, doing something. Otherwise, you'd spend all your time huddled over a piano. That's then, right. Indoors. <laughs> that's right. But it was, of course, quite competitive. And that's where I think it didn't quite excite me because um, I didn't want to be competitive in the figure skating field. My competitiveness... That's <laughs> a hard word. It would be rather more in the music. Um, so in some ways, I didn't really love it. I'm guessing this is the 1970s we're talking about. The, it's called the, the Brezhnev era, the era of stagnation. Do you, food in short supply? What, what do you remember of that time? Okay, food. Um, everybody somehow got around. You know, you in the shops there wasn't much available. You could always get bread, sugar and flour and milk. So that was the staple food. Scones all day then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sort of. <laughs> and you could always get potatoes. And so I was actually brought up on potatoes. And I always think, think that shows because I still love potatoes. It's funny enough, uh, you learn to be very creative with potatoes. What's really hard is to get meat. It was very difficult. Um, and any vegetables which are not in season, like, you know, you could get beetroot in, in winter, you know, sometimes. But you, actually it was really difficult. You had to be... Uh, not only creative in um, food making, you had to be creative where to get it and how to get it. And, you know, you, if something was suddenly available, let's say you found out there was beef available in this shop, there was suddenly this huge queue of people running in and trying to get it. And, of course, also there was this um, system of giving you that much meat, but then you had to buy a lot of bones and fat on top of it. You wouldn't get the other bit of the meat without buying that <laughs> fat. So that was um, quite interesting. And, you know, it, when you kind of there, you don't think about it that much. You don't know what, what you're not having, do you? Exactly. So. You don't think about mm. it. You're happy when you get your cucumbers, which is sometimes difficult to get. You know, you, you're just very happy to get something new. Occasionally, my father used to go to Moscow for work and he would bring bananas back. And that was just like a miracle. Or oranges, you know, we would make them last for months. Sometimes I think I, I would open an orange and split it in bits, you know, in those little bits and leave a couple of them for, for the next day. And, you know, and, and when they even get hard, they were still so precious to us, you know. They were, <laughs> they were, it was just very different attitude to food. If you can only get one orange a year, that orange must be like heaven. Yes, and, and sometimes I look at an orange here and there's abundance of fruit and vegetables. Yeah, you don't care. I do. I sometimes <laughs> do remember those yeah. days where there's one little bit, like one portion Hard. of that. Yeah, of this orange was so special. I remember 
how my sister and I, we used to talk about it and we used to sort of um, leave those bits, you know, just next to our pillow, just for the next morning to enjoy. It's kind of now, you, you, were you competitive with your sister, given that, you know, there she was, she was getting a piano lesson on it, and Elena, little Elena shows up and bang, she's streaking her hair. Was it a competitive sisterhood? Not at all, because my sister, her name is Larissa, she's just an amazing person. She's just so... She's one of those people who have golden heart. From beginning um, of our childhood, she was just my, just this very loving sister. She was do anything, you know, f- to make me happy or to. So she was actually very proud of me being good at music, and she was always supporting me. She still does. Fourteen, you went to Moscow, going to the big city. Now, everyone was trying to get into Moscow in those days, weren't they? In the Soviet Union, was that because there was more food and there were just more goods, really, <laughs> more oranges? That's actually true yeah. in some ways, but no, there was actually the best musical education in in the country. So to actually really progress and learn something amazing um, training, to get this amazing training of music, you actually had to go to Moscow or in those days Leningrad as well, um, which is now Petersburg, St. Petersburg. You had to um, go to one of those two. Uh, Moscow was nearer to us and there was this great school called Gnesin Academy and it was uh, yeah, it was quite hard to get into. They took uh, 15 kids out of 600 into this course that I've applied for. And I was 14. And what it meant is that I had to leave home and leave in this hostel. And it's a bit I, scary? I know. I was so excited. Really? <laughs> I was so excited. Scary just maybe the first day. Once I got in, I was so happy because suddenly I had friends. I had friends who actually accepted me because they were also musicians. They didn't they w- think you were weird anymore. No, because- suddenly I was not this strange person who has this interest, <laughs> who, you know, because it's very, it's yeah. actually quite difficult to be one of a kind. Um, you know, when you grow up in your whole class, um, you're the only one who, who is studying music in that to that extent, you know, to really this thorough extent, um, you become this sort of weird person. People think, you know, you're not quite just, you know, like so there everyone. there are more people like me in the world, and, and here we are. Richard with Eleanor Katz-Chernan, who emigrated to Australia in 1975. So we're happily able to claim Eleanor and her prolific works as an Australian. Our last story is told by the mighty singing sisters Vicka and Linda Bull. It starts with Vicar recalling the backdrop to their childhood in suburban Melbourne, the music of their mother's Tongan church. We'd have to go along every Sunday and sit there for hours. And <laughs> how, how many listen. hours? Well, a long time, actually. Like, church took up, took all day. You know, we'd be sitting in that hall for more than three hours, I remember. And it was like, oh, my God, this is so boring because it was all in Tongan. <laughs> But the really great thing about church was listening to the choir and that's why Dad made us go, so we could hear the singing because the Tongans are incredible singers. A really big part of their service is singing. I don't know, have you heard a Tongan choir sing? No, not in person, unfortunately. I'd love to. Yeah, well, it's it's something to... We've taken friends to church and as soon as the choir starts, every single one of our friends has burst into tears. So it's very moving. You can really hear the emotion and the belief and the passion when they sing, you know, and, and it's very, very, very powerful, like in volume. 
you know. It's like it just bang, they start up. It's like where on earth did that come from? <laughs> did your so, did your mum sing in the choir, Vicar? Yes, she did. She was like the soloist when she was young, when she was in church, she was the soloist in the choir. She's got a really, really loud voice, Sarah. <laughs> She's got the loudest voice out of everybody. Like Linda and I would, as soon as she'd open her mouth, Linda and I would duck for cover <laughs> and we'd just, we'd hide under the church pews because we were so embarrassed at how loud she was. Is that how you remember it too, Linda? Well, you know when you're a kid and you hear something embarrassing, <laughs> your eyes kind of widen and you look down it's like, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? You know, this is our mum. So um, we just sort of looked down and, and she'd just hold our hands and, you know, she was going for it, for Jesus, and <laughs> we'd sit there and listen. <laughs> but, you know, I knew that she had a beautiful voice. I could hear that beautiful timbre. It, it, her, her voice cuts through sheet metal. That's where Vicky gets it from, you know. You know they all compete with one another. All the time I love it because they all try to be louder than one another. <laughs> Yeah, mum won. Yeah. <laughs> Did your mum teach you singing as well? Yes, she taught us how to sing. She taught us how to sing in harmony, and uh, she could hear that we could we could sing in tune because we used to sing all the time. You know, along to TV theme songs, ads, the radio, <laughs> everything on. You know, three XY, we'd sing along to. We just loved singing, and so she thought, oh well, they 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 can hold a tune, so I'll teach them how to sing in harmony. Mm. So she taught Linda the low parts and me the high parts and off we went. Did you girls sing in church too? No, not really. We did, we did one performance once in front of everyone. Mum, mum taught us a song. What was it? That, it, was a, oh, it was a pretty daggy song. Um, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> Everything is hunky-dory-dory, children of the Lord. And so we sang that. But I also remember too, one time we got up in church to sing and Linda was holding a candle and she had this beautiful long hair and she turned and her hair caught on fire. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It went, I'd never seen anything catch a light so quickly, you know. It was a mum miracle. Had to put it, yeah, mum had to put it out. She burned her hand. Oh, my God. Linda, do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, of course I remember that. <laughs> Michael Jackson moment. It was terrible. <laughs> How old were you, you poor thing? I was only a little tucker. Wow, what an amazing thing. And and what about when those hours in church were over? What would the community get together and do then? Well, we'd have a big feast afterwards. And a lot of the time they'd come back to our place and bring their guitars and sing their songs, sing their, you know, songs from home, love songs and things, and cook a pig and cook an, make an umu, which is like a, a hungi, you know, an underground oven. Dig up, dig up Dad's backyard, but he didn't mind that. He loved it. He thought it was great. And, yeah, we'd eat and, and sit around and sing and they'd talk and reminisce. It was beautiful. This was all happening in suburban Doncaster. How fantastic. That's what, well, see, that was an embarrassing thing too for us because, you know, we were the only Tongan family in the street and the whole neighbourhood could hear it. So, again, Linda and I would run to our bedrooms and hide under the bed. <laughs> I just think all those lucky neighbours getting that free concert. You know, I just thought it was embarrassing more than anything. But looking back now, it was, I, you know, it was a great thing for the Tongans to be able to, to come together and, and be together. Mm. Vicar Bull and Sister Linda Bull, who drew on the music and the harmonies from their formative years to forge big careers that are going stronger than ever decades later. The other stories in our musical origins collection were from In Order, 
Vic Sims, Jen Cloer, Rob Hurst, William Barton and Eleanor Katz-Chernan. You can find links to their full episodes on the Conversations website and we really hope you'll seek them out. There's plenty more stories there. From Richard Feidler and from me, Sarah Konoski, thanks for listening. And of course, extra special thank you to all those extraordinary musicians. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, it's Elizabeth Coolass here. If you're looking for another ABC podcast filled with fantastic true stories, I'd love it if you'd try listening to mine. It's called Days Like These. You will find laughs, you will find danger, heartbreak, triumph, love, all the good stuff. These are real Australian stories and everyone comes with a little twist. Just search for Days Like These in your favourite podcast app.